All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gotham Writers Inside Writing. Today, we're going to be talking about historical fiction. But first, our usual string of announcements. As you know, the Gotham Writers Conference is a go on Zoom for October 16th through 18th. Registration is open on the Gotham website. More on that at the end of the show. Also, stay tuned at the end of the show for instructions for how to participate in the Twitter pitch party. As for today, remember that at any point in the show, you can submit your own questions for the Q&A segment. There's a Q&A button on the dashboard of your Zoom window where you can see to that. And now we get to talk about historical fiction. We're gonna start with a quote from Helen Cam who said, historical fiction is not only a respectable literary form, it is a standing reminder of the fact that history is about human beings. We're gonna get more into that quote later, but first time to meet our guests. Uh, first off, the author of the New York Times best-selling novel, The Secrets We Kept, Laura Prescott. Hello, Laura. Hi, how are hey, you? I'm good. Yeah, thank you for being here. And then founding partner and literary agent of Folio Lit, Jeff Kleinman. Hi, Jeff. Howdy. Hey there. So, Jeff, we normally start these shows with a definition, but historical fiction is pretty self-explanatory. So I was wondering if you could just tell us, where does historical fiction begin? How far back do you have to go before it's historical fiction? Um, I don't know that historical fiction is self-explanatory. Um, for instance, I don't know that Lara wrote historical fiction. So can we, can we drill into that a little bit more? Absolutely, um, yeah. To me, if you use the word historical fiction, there's a genre component to it. Um, Lara wrote a literary novel that was set in the past. And I think that's a different animal. So if in, in the publishing world, if I say I represent historical fiction, um, there's a little bit less of a focus on the writing, on the voice, and a little more focus on, I think, the plot. Mm -hmm. So I think you, we should just really differentiate that. Lara, would you agree? Yeah, I think it's interesting, too. I think with historical fictions, um, people who are diehard part of the genre would say that if I made up, you know, the weather on a particular day, then that's not historical fiction. It, it's really fact by fact um, for some people. I think there's different definitions for different people, but I would say that my book is kind of defies all uh, different genres. I think some people classify it as a spy book. Some people classify it as historical fiction. To me, it's just a novel, a literary novel um, that is set in the past that I used history to fictionalize. It's interesting. I was, I was, I was going to bring up that point later. So whenever you pitched this idea, you didn't pitch it as historical. You just pitched it as a regular literary novel. Yeah, I don't, I, the way that I'm, you know, how I pitched it to Jeff or how did Jeff pitch it to publishers? Let's start with how you pitched it to Jeff. Well, I actually, the way that Jeff and I found each other um, is Jeff found me through, I submitted um, an excerpt of the novel to a summer fellowship uh, contest. And while I didn't win the contest and, you know, that was fine with me being a writer, you're used to you know, getting rejections. And I kind of forgot about it when I, when I heard from Jeff and someone had, and I'm not even sure exactly what happened, but someone had passed um, my first, I think it was like 25 pages of the novel to Jeff. And I got an email from Jeff and my other agent, Jamie, and they said they wanted to chat about the novel. And then we just had a phone call discussion about what I was working on. And this was pretty much in the earlier days. I was still on the first draft of the novel. So 
I was saying, you know, this is what I'm thinking it's going to be. I didn't really even have an elevator pitch or real pitch at the time. So Jeff, when you got it, you didn't pitch it as historical fiction either when it went to market. Yeah, I'm actually, I brought up my cover letter. Um, can I read the opening paragraph of my cover letter, which I don't think Lara's ever seen. Yeah, please do. <laughs> um, uh, so it starts with dear um, editor, Sometimes very special books divide the world into the time before you read them and the time after. Um, the Secrets We Kept is one. This is a wonderful, revelatory, unforgettable read. You're about to discover, discover a world where books are weapons and words alone can kill. So that's my opening paragraph. And it doesn't talk in the next, next sentences in 1957 America at the height of the Cold War, blah, blah, blah. But it was never sort of talked about in terms of this is a book set in a historical period. It was, this is a stunningly beautiful novel that just happens to be told in the past. So, so I think like when you're talking to a lot of the published, a lot of the agents out there, we do, we really differentiate between book club fiction that's set in the past and a genre historical novel. And you said, you said the main difference there is just the focus on the plot. No, well, the, the, the what, the, the big thing to me is um, I kind of differentiate books into three categories. Uh, commercial fiction is really plot driven. Um, literary fiction is really voice driven. And, and book club fiction, um, which is considered sort of a cross between them, is I think of its character driven. Mm -hmm. And so Lara's book is somewhere between book, book club fiction and literary fiction. But it's not commercial fiction and historical fiction is often put in the commercial fiction category. Mm -hmm. So you brought up a lot of interesting points, and I, I do want to address a lot of them later, such as character. Um, but I want to talk about research for a second, because Jeff, whenever I reached out to you about a good author for this, you mentioned that Laura had done so much research for this book. So Laura, I wanted to, to see where, where did you begin with the research here? Like, where did this idea spawn from? Yeah, so... I was named Lara after the main character of Dr. Zhivago, which my novel revolves around this almost secret history behind the publication of Dr. Zhivago and how the CIA used it as a, a weapon during the Cold War. And so I'd always had this love for the novel and a love for Boris Pasternak, a love for the David Lean film. And it was in 2014 that my father had emailed me this Washington Post article by Peter Finn and Petra Cuve. And what they had done, they had petitioned the CIA to release these documents detailing their mission of how they used Dr. Zhivago as a tool of propaganda. And I was really just struck with the thought that a book could be seen as a weapon and have been used as a weapon. And I had this background in politics. I worked on political campaigns for a number of years living in Washington, D.C. And so it kind of met all these different strange passions in my life of Dr. Zhivago and propaganda and words being able to change the hearts and minds of people. And, and so after I read that, I went immediately to the CIA's website to read. There's about 100 documents. They're all redacted memos and reports detailing this almost stranger than fiction mission. And it was then that I thought this could be a novel. And I think I emailed my husband and said, this is going to be my next novel, my first novel. I have a novel in the drawer that never made it, <laughs> made it out, but this is going to be my first published novel. And from there, I just really started researching everything I could about the early days of the CIA, as many first-person accounts as I could find. I started researching everything about Boris Pasternak. And what I found that I was mostly drawn to um, maybe the people behind um, 
you know, the usual suspects. So for Boris Pasternak, I was really drawn to Olga Ivanskaya, who was his mistress and muse. And I read her um, account of all that happened during this mission and the writing of Dr. Zhivago and everything she went through. She published her own book called A Captive of Time. And, you know, it just goes from there. I think I spent months and months reading all of these, you know, a lot of primary resources, a lot of memos, reports, um, documentaries, before I started thinking who could the voice come from? Where is this voice coming from? And it did come from those first CIA documents that I read because I, I started thinking of the voice of a typing pool um, for the CIA. So that was the first voice that came to me and it just went from there. But the research never stopped. I have, I'm, I'm in my little writing shed in um, Austin, Texas, but in my house I have, you know, a bookshelf with a full giant whoa, giant row of all the research books and magazines and, you know, time, Times cover of Boris Pasternak and like a 1959 article in Life magazine, all of these random things I found on eBay and auction sites, I just kept collecting throughout the writing process. And Jeff, when it comes to research, is, is there a way for a writer to know when they have enough research or does it ever stop? Should they keep researching? Um. I feel like research is one of those really scary rabbit holes for people to go down. Um, I think it's problematic for two reasons. One, I think you never know enough. And so you can just keep like delving deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, what kind of shoes did they wear? And what kind of heels, what, what did the, the soles of the heels look like? Because maybe there's a scene where she's sitting on a couch and he's looking at the sole of her shoe. So I should go out and research everything about 1950s shoes. Um, and and I don't think that's a problem. The problem is, is that it's easy to go down that way and it's easy to let you in, get intimidated by it, that you've done all this research. And then it feels like the big thing that happens, and it happens almost every case when I see a novel, uh, a novel that's set in the past, and that is the author's done all this research. Well, I figured out what kind of sole of the shoe she's wearing, so I need to put that in somewhere. She flashed her white sole of her <laughs> shoe at that hip. And... Um, and the trick is, to me, it's you do all the research and then you forget it. You let it go and you just write the flipping book. And then when you're rewriting it and the revision process, you know, maybe you'll put in some more of these details. But I really, really feel strongly that if you're writing and you want to show off your research, it's, it's going to be a problem. Yeah, that's definitely true. And, and if you're reading a book that is just fact after fact after fact, like you're reading a Wikipedia article, it just... It, it seems like why didn't the author just write a nonfiction book? This isn't about character. This isn't about, you know, feeling. Um, this isn't about story. It's more about facts. So I think, you know, when you have something like that, the author's almost showing off how much they know by putting everything in, it really takes you out of the story. So I, I agree with Jeff, like, no, maybe know the shoe, but you don't need to always put in the shoe. And I think I like walk that line and I think I had to, you know, think about taking things out. Um, and that's what really helps in the revision process. Like I don't need to know. Um, I didn't need to go on this like ramble about every single thing I've learned. I can stick to the character. That's, that's what's really important. That's what I want to read about. I like this quote, know the shoe. That doesn't mean you put in the shoe. I think that's a great quote. <laughs> go ahead, Jeff. Um, the, the thing, I guess, is, is you want to do the research ahead of time because you want to walk around in those characters' shoes. You, you want to like, embody them. You want to make sure they're coming alive. 
and it, it's about them. And so the thing I think to keep in mind is just because you've done the research and you don't use it, it it'll still come out in the authority of your voice. You'll just be assured the way you'll describe her walking up the steps, there will be some assurance that people will believe, oh, this guy's actually walked up the steps in her shoes. Um, even if you haven't talked about the color of the carpet or, you know, the paneling, because you know what the paneling looks like. You've done that research, but, but because the character is not focused on the paneling, she's focusing on the serial killer, like stab, like coming up the stairs behind her, you know, we know there's paneling and maybe she'll reach out and grab it at one point. But if not, we, we know the, the author knows it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also think sometimes I used procrastination, and this is my other writers out there might feel the same way. I procrastinated by keep, I kept researching and thinking like, oh, I do need to do a day's research about these shoes. And really, it was because writing is, is really tough. And sitting at your desk in front of a blank screen is really tough. And I was just using an excuse to not have to sit there <laughs> and, and do it. And so I think once you get to that point, you have to put it aside, you have to just start writing and and not use it as um, almost a, a way to to keep you from writing because you'll you'll never unless you're you know, you have your PhD in that very particular subject, you know, that might be overkill for for the novel. Mm-hmm. And that might have already answered the question I was going to go into, which was, when, Laura, when did you know enough was enough research? Was that the moment? Uh, yeah, I think when I started realizing how much I was procrastinated by going down rabbit holes, I think you can, you know, you have the initial facts, but then you keep going down layers and layers and layers. And once you're researching, you know, particulars about gum or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where would you buy it? And, and you know that this isn't really going to be in it. I need to stop. So maybe, you know, get that, get a good ground under you um, and just concentrate on the story. And then like Jeff said, you know, you'll always have people, you know, you'll have, you know, editors and readers that will chime in up like this, this detail's wrong, or you need more detail here. And I think, or you will know that during the revision process. So adding in more later, I think is probably the way to go. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, for people that are writing in history, whether it's historical fiction or just set in history, do you recommend them get authenticity readers, people that verify the facts ahead of time, or is that something agents and editors will do? Gosh, I don't know. It seems like a good idea if you if you know somebody who knows the period and can talk about it. It doesn't seem like a bad idea at all, but um, it's not... It's not something that we, we're going to assume that you have the authority and you know what you're doing. And especially because it's a novel. If this is nonfiction, we expect your facts to be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for um, me, I had the opportunity because I was getting my MFA at the time and at the Mitchell Center for Writers at the University of Texas. And if you're writing a book, you can take any class in the university. <laughs> this is a plug for the Mitchell Center. You can take any class in the university that might aid in your research. So I was taking Cold War history. I was taking... Um, Soviet literature. I was doing all these things to help aid me and those professors um, ended up being really good readers or fact checkers for those types of things. So if you happen to be in an MFA program, just expand yourself and and use the university. It's such an asset. You don't need to just be in workshop. You can take, you know, take what you want. Jeff, I want to go back to something you said. So for you and the editor, you trust the author to know all their facts. You, you don't do any checking. So is it very, is it possible that stuff will slip through that's not accurate if the writer didn't do their research? Yeah, of course. Like, I, this is not my job and I'm not going to hire somebody to go check facts here. And uh, a lot of times editors are. 
So, I mean, Laura, there's a couple of cases. I love a couple of these. Laura got letters from people saying, on page 255, you did this, this, and this, and it's not right. And Laura's like, well, actually, actually, it is right, and here's why. But that was, you know, but there are going to be people that will correct you. Yeah, I think, yeah, and it, mine's been through. I had um, a copy editor who was checking facts with me and, you know, and making changes. But I also, yeah, one one instance which Jeff was talking about, someone said, you know, whiteout wasn't used, was discovered then, and, and it was invented at your time, but it wasn't used until 1960 um, in offices. And I was like, okay, well, it, it, it existed. I'm just going <laughs> to, I'll take it out. But it's, it, people will find those mistakes. And I think no matter, you know, how many times you've read it or had other people read it, those kinds of things can slip through. But you can always change it for reprints <laughs> if, it's, if it's a big deal. That was actually, that was going to be my next question because I know I've heard a lot of historical people that write in history that get letters from people saying this was incorrect. So you've had to deal with that even if, even if they're wrong. Yeah, and I've had, I think a lot of authors have people point things out like that through emails and really impassioned whiteout supporters of Correction Inc. And um, so you'll hear it. And I think most of my writer friends have heard little things like that, um, whether it's been historical or not. Mm -hmm. So, Jeff, I, I mean, I'm fine with it. I, I do like proving them wrong if I, if I knew it was wrong, but <laughs> I thank them and, and, and tell them thanks for being a keen reader. <laughs> Jeff, with, with Laura's book, it seems like the subject matter of the book definitely resonates with the modern audience, even though it is set in the past. Is that a big, a big, a deal, a big deal for historical fiction or stories set in history to have them resonate with modern day issues? Or can it just exist in this sort of separate world back in the past? No, I find certain, certain um, time periods harder to deal with. Um, Neop, like 18th century pirate stories, like seafaring stories, um, stuff like that feels a little harder in this world. And one of the things that, that um, I, I think you want, the point of a novel is it, one of the points of a novel is it kind of acts as a mirror to show us up, to show up the world we live in. So if it doesn't feel relevant, if the people aren't alive and vibrant, um, that could be a concern. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I'm just gonna kind of recircling back because it feels like we're dancing around all the other things and I know we have to talk about character, but if you read books, it's the characters that we're gonna care about. It's mm -hmm. if you make the character that vivid and that interesting, then fine set it in 18th century England on a pirate ship. But it's, it's, it's all about your, ability to create believable, interesting, vivid characters mm. that I think is the most important. And as a writer, you can have the best idea or discover the, the, the coolest thing in history that no one's written about, but it really doesn't go anywhere unless you find that voice or you find that character. You can, you can have a million of those ideas and it will never you know, transform itself into a story. I think finding that voice is the most important part even if you if you thought you have this really clever thing that that only gets you to 10 pages uh, it's not going to get you a, an awful so let, let's jump into character then uh laura with, with the characters your protagonist how did you build these characters were they based off historical figures or did you just kind of create them some of them it's a little bit of both so I split my book into East and West. So the West we have our, you know, Washington DC spy story, the CIA, the typing pool and, and other women spies. And those were um, fictional characters in part because 
these CIA documents have been redacted. So those names of the officers actually involved in these missions are erased from history, at least for now. Um, everyone except the, the man who would sign the, the memo at the end of the day would be like Alan Dulles, you know, the boss. <laughs> so that was where I was researching, you know, other women spies and, and thinking about what their roles would have been like, what they would have been able to do, what they would have been assigned. And I fictionalized um, characters. So my character of Sally, she has roots um, in World War II as being an, an intelligence officer during the war. But after the war, she wasn't really sure um, what use she was um, now that the CIA exists. And there are many women like Virginia Hall, who's one of the most famous women spies who had the same ex life experience, who was a hero during the war and was put behind a desk at the CIA. So. I took a lot of these pieces of those women's stories to fictionalize characters of my own. But on the Eastern side, I have the Soviet story. I have Boris Pasternak, obviously a real person. His, his mistress, Olga, obviously a real person. And I really wanted to capture them and do them justice. But also, I was more interested in, you know, thinking about what they said to each other, you know, when there wasn't letters um, noting exactly what was said. You know, what did they say to each other? How can I capture their essence to imagine scenes between the, the two of them? So while they're real people and I tried to stick to the facts, I also um, used, you know, fictionalized their emotions and, and what they might have felt during that time. I really wanted to, you know, have the reader be able to walk in their shoes. And I think that's something that, you know, fiction can do that, you know, not, well, actually, nonfiction can do it, too, but fiction can do it in this almost deeper way. Jeff, I, I feel like I know the answer to this question. I want to ask it anyway. Are, what are, the, are there differences between creating a character that lives in the past and creating one from present day? Like, are, are the, the basic elements of creating a character the same, or what are the differences between creating a character that lives in 18th century versus creating a character that lives now? It would seem to me that you've done the research and you if, for instance, um, we're dealing with someone who is um, has a different mindset, they don't like people with green hair. Um, and back in 18th century England, green hair is punishable by death. And like, like I would Im imagine that that it would be important that that kind of mindset would come across, and you have to somehow make that relatable today. But like a character is a character. Like, like it's a person's. If you if you don't relate to them and you don't engage with them emotionally, I don't. I don't think it matters. I, I I once worked on this book with this woman who wrote dialogue very poorly, um, and her her response was it was a science, It was a novel set in the future. It was some science fiction novel, and she said, "Well, you know, in this time period, everyone spoke like this. It's like the way they spoke." And that doesn't really answer the question. It's still like, I read it and I'm thinking, boy, this is really hard to read. So it's the same thing it feels like with the character. Like if you wanna make the character very dislikable, that's great, but we've still gotta understand what's motivating him, how he's gonna engage. And yeah, I don't, I don't, think, I shouldn't, I don't think you should use his, the, set, the fact that it's set a different time period as a cop out to really doing your hard work as, of, of creating a believable character. And Laura, did did the historical did history ever get in the way of your crafting a character? Were there any historical nuances like the way they spoke or the way they dressed that kind of got in the way of the characters you were creating? Um, that's interesting. I think I did have to think about 
what, especially on the Western side, when I was writing these women spies, and I know that um, people have said my book is, you know, real feminist flair, but at the time period, these women wouldn't have even known the word feminist yet. And even if they were strong women and had this, you know, glass ceiling above them, the way that they would express their frustrations would be different than we would today. And I think during my revisions, I really had to dial that back of, you know, the women, you know, maybe telling people off in a very vocal way, like they might do today of, of how they would deal with those circumstances. So while I have it, it I don't know if it got in the way, but I, I have these feelings that I had to um, transfer to the time period um, what the characters actually would have done, even if they had the same feeling. So that that might not be the you know direct answer, but it it was an interesting thought process of no, they wouldn't you know be protesting outside the CIA. They would be you know talking amongst themselves and and showing their frustrations other ways. Mm -hmm. So you brought up a theme that I wanted to get to as well. There's this promotional quote: it "says in a man's world, women are the perfect spies." Was this a concept, it's a very high concept, was this something that you came up with or is this sort of a theme that your book is built around? I didn't come up with it, uh, with that you know, promotional concept, but I do think when I was researching about the roles women could play, so at this early days of CA, they could be in the typing pool, they could be in personnel, they could be answering phones, um, or there was roles women played, and my characters play two of them, of being a messenger and, you know, taking envelopes and packages back and forth um, from the CIA to other government agencies or drop-off points to other people. And the reason women were chosen with, for that is because they could go unnoticed and no one would suspect that they were carrying the secret with them. And so that idea of women be able, being able to go into another role and almost become invisible um, was something that I put into the book. And I think that was picked up on um, by the, the marketing folks. <laughs> Gotcha. Jeff, Jeff how can I chime in here? Yeah, definitely. can I? Because I can read a little bit of Lara's book. I'll be really short. Sure. But the point is, is that it's about character. So the opening book and Lara, I'm going to skip around. So don't don't reach over the zoom line and smack me. Um, uh, it starts with we typed a hundred words per minute and never missed a syllable. Our identical desks were each equipped with a mint-shelled Royal Quiet Deluxe typewriter, a black Western Electric rotary phone and a stack of yellow steno pads. So there's a lot of detail here. And you don't, and all you know is that the, the people are paying attention, right? And there's something very focused about the way these people wrote, uh, these people are looking at things. We typed 100 words per minute and never missed a syllable. It's really important to them. That, and, you, and you realize in the next paragraph, it's because that's all they're doing is sitting here. They're sitting there staring at this desk all day and um, I'm going to go a little bit further because it answers, it talks a little bit about what you were just asking her. Um, the men would arrive around 10, one by one, they'd pull us into their offices. We'd sit in small chairs, push into the corner while they'd sit behind a large mahogany desk or pace the carpet while speaking to the ceiling. We'd listen, we'd record. We were the audience of one for their memos, reports, write-ups, lunch orders. Um, it keeps going, but then sometimes they'd refer to us not by name, but by hair color or body type, blondie, red, tits. We had our secret names for them too. Grabber, coffee breath, teeth. They would call us girls, but we were not. So the reason I read that is because there's a lot of research that went in here, 
But what's important here is that these women are super pissed off. They're, these women are sitting there in front of these typewriters, and these guys are pigs, and they are freaking mad. And that's what that chapter does. It's not about, oh, let me tell you what the CIA typing pool is sitting in. Let me tell you what their offices look like. Mm -hmm. It's let me tell you what it's like to sit here and be brilliant and be totally ignored. So that's the point of a novel is it's, it's about the character. It's about the emotion that drives it. And everybody gets stuck on, like most people that are not as talented as Lara would have given us a description of, I'm sitting in the room and I'm looking at the desk and I'm doing all this stuff. And that's not what's important. What's important is they are ignored. And, and Lara showed them being ignored rather than told us they're ignored. Mm. I'm off my soapbox now. <laughs> no. I like but, it. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And that, that segue, you know, I was going to, speaking of things that are important in, in stories, I was going to ask you, Jeff, how important theme is in a story. Because there are some clear themes radiating in Laura's book. Is that something that you look for when you're evaluating a story? I just sit down and read it. And like, like all I do is like want to fall in like, you know, like I was reading this novel. I was, this is a, several months ago. I was on the subway in, in New York city that used to exist. And um, it was a thing set in, it was a seance set in the 19th century. And um, I was supposed to get off at 41st, 42nd street. And I missed 42nd street and almost missed the 34th street stop. And I looked up, I'm like, Oh my God. And I don't know if there were themes, like I guess there were, and I don't know, like I was just reading and I was caught up in the action. Like, like Laura's book, you're caught up in it, and that's the point. So your job as authors is primarily to make me engage, and I think authors forget that. It's interesting. Engage emotion. Yeah, I think I do. Um, I think the themes were pointed out to me, and it's not something that I was going in with, if that makes sense. I wasn't going in thinking, I want to prove this point. It, it was pointed out to me, oh, you, you know, you're really writing <laughs> mostly about women and you must have this take. And it's, and it's really, I think I was just following my passions. And I think that's what makes something readable. And you can tell when an author becomes almost obsessed with the topic. It's, it's not that I wanted to prove some point. It's just that I was inhabiting what I thought it was like to be them. And it, it takes over. Um, that said, yeah, I think, you know, you, I think these themes are something that I will carry on with me to the next book or just things I'm interested in, not necessarily themes. I'm interested in the power of literature. I'm interested in, um, you know, stories of, of people who might not have had their stories told. There's just little, little things that I think I'm interested every day when I look at the news or every day when I pick up another book to read um, that just stays with me. Mm -hmm. So I want to change gear a little bit, uh, bring up another quote. Uh, George R. R. Martin said that his problem with historical fiction is that you know what's going to happen in the end. Laura, obviously we know how the Cold War turned out. Did that ever affect your writing of the story with, with knowing that people knew what was going to happen or could find out what was going to happen essentially? Well, it, it is... Uh, yeah, well, they know how history ends, but um, with how the different characters' lives end, you know, that, for me, for the fictional characters, I wasn't even sure until I was getting towards the end, you know, who, you know, what the outcomes for Sally and Arena are going to be. Um, of course, you know, with the historical figures, you know what the outcomes are for them, if you've known, you know, know a little bit about Boris Pasternak, but... For me, it wasn't um, so much of a spoiler. It was almost like I'm the point is what happens to the characters, not so much of what, you know, what's the outcome of the Cold War. 
um, you know, does the Soviet Union lose? That that isn't really even figured into my ending. Mm-hmm. So I, I did want to kind of piggyback on that with another sort of concept within writing historicals that you have to be fair to both sides. And with you having the West and the East, you know, obviously from our perspective, it, it often looks the Cold War, it was good versus bad. How did you be fair to both sides? How did you create good on, I mean, because both sides are human, right? So did, yeah. how did you go about making sure that you were fair to both sides of this conflict? Oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, that's an interesting question because I never, for me, I, I don't see things as good and bad, really. Um, and <laughs> knowing a little bit about the history of both sides, I can't, I can't say that either of them come off very, very good. And so when I was, I, I definitely had to think about, I don't want the Soviet side to just be the bad guys because when I was writing, this is a really interesting part of CIA's history and it's almost before they start going, um, you know, to another direction um, where they believed in literature. And I I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, But at the same time, I wanted to present what was it like for these women who were working there? What was it like if you were gay and working there? What was this country who was saying we were the most free and look at us, you're not as free as we are when they're also persecuting their own employees or their own people that live in the country. So... I wanted to explore the positive and negatives of both sides. This wasn't a good versus bad story. It's just trying to be accurate of, of what was really going on. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, do you think it's an important thing for histor- people writing in history to be fair to both sides or does that not matter? I don't care. Gotcha. <laughs> Um, so I want to talk about world building before we get into audience questions. Um, obviously tied into research and, and, and authenticity, but Jeff, what was it about Laura's world building, the, the, where the story was set that really made it pop? See, you're asking the wrong question because I don't represent historical fiction. So I represent novels and what made it pop was the voice and the assurance in the writing. And um, you know, the nice thing that I wanna have is some kind of premise that I can talk about really briefly. Um, so I was having dinner with um, two of the editors. They ended up bidding on Laura's book and we we're talking about what, I, what we had all going up there. And I told you this, I, I know I told you this like a long time ago. You but might have. I was having dinner with them like before I went out before I went out with the book, and I can talk about it very briefly, how it's the, in 1957, the CIA tried to foment rebellion by dropping copies of Dr. Zhivago all over um, Russia, and this is partially that story told from the perspective of this typing pool, these brilliant women who ended up typing the manuscript. And when I told them that, um, like this one woman, she she grabbed me. (laughs) She was so nice to me, she she like literally grabbed me. She's like, is that ready to go yet? I'm like, no, she's working on revisions. She's like, I'll work on revisions with her. How soon can I see it? So, um, and they were both like, you know, they both got the manuscript. But it's the point is, is that if you can talk about something succinctly and you get people engaged, as long as it's like a premise that sounds interesting, I don't know that we have to have a time period or anything else. It's, I focus more on, on the story and is there a premise that's strong? Mm-hmm. So Laura, from, from getting that initial idea to seeing the book hit the shelves, what would you say was the most difficult part of the journey? For me, I think the 
the first draft for me is always the most difficult because I like to explore. I like to kind of outline as I'm going along and, and go down different routes and then piece everything together. I write really long and then I, you know, splice it up and find the structure. And I think that exploration can come with a lot of frustration where you're wondering if you can finish, if you can do it. And I remember I, when I was in my MFA program, George Saunders came to speak with our class. And he said, you know, every day I have to get up and almost gain myself into writing um, while I'm working on this first draft because every day I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. And, I, and this is George Saunders who I you know, look up to so much. And he was like, you don't know what you're doing. You think you can't do it. Everything you wrote before, the day before was, you know, shit. <laughs> He's like, you have to game yourself and to keep going. And I think that's the trick with the first draft is every day you just sit down and you try to work and you can't let yourself get almost caught up on, is this, is this going to be the best thing ever? Is this okay? Can I do it? You just have to do it. And so I think that's always a mental challenge. And it took me the longest amount of time to write that first draft. And when you come to the revisions and you kind of see it, that's almost, for me, the fun part. It's And then working with the editor is extraordinary, too. So, yeah, it, it gets a little easier after that blank page for me. And Jeff, for you, from offering representation to seeing it on shelves, what was the most difficult part for you? It sounds like everything lined up pretty neatly with all the editors being so excited for it, but was there a particular part where it hit a snag or where you had difficulty with it? I think the hardest part in anything is the revision process with the with the author. Um, the way we normally work, I mean, it was a little bit different with Lara, but normally the way you work is you send, an, uh, the author sends the book to you and you read it and you really like it, but there are some issues. And the issues are not gonna be overwhelming. They don't make you stop. And you like the book a lot or you love the book, but there are these things you wanna tweak. Um, and then you go back to the author and you say, here's what I like, I think you should do. And the author either agrees or doesn't. And if the author doesn't agree, that may be fine. Um, it may be that you just have vision, different visions of the book. But often the author's like, oh yeah, this makes sense. And then the author revises and maybe the author spends nine months revising. And then they send it back to you again and you read it or you get your editor reader to read it. And um, there are new issues that have come up and you have to revise again. And so maybe there's another 10, six months of revising and you go back and forth and you think, and, and most of you people like are listening are like, oh, well, that's fine. I'll just do it. But there you get to a point with an author and you just know they're not going to make any more revisions. You get to, you get to that point and you're like, ah, okay, this is as good as it's going to get. And, um, we have a joke in Folio that we call it. We want the we want to get to the point where the book is microwavable, so the editor can stick the book in the microwave, press you know start for thirty seconds, and have a book finished. Um, and what authors don't realize is that um, it's so tough to sell a, a novel. You really want it firing on all cylinders, and authors just get weary of it. And that to me is the hardest part of the process. Mm -hmm. I also I want to talk about rejection briefly because it's something that all writers are going to face. So Laura, what have you learned? I assume you faced some rejection along the way in your writing journey. What have you learned from those rejections? Yeah, I think when you're first starting out as a writer and you get that first rejection, it's really hard. And you think that I'm terrible. I can't do it. What am I trying to do here? And can you guys hear me? Sorry, the screen froze. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. And 
I think your self-esteem really plummets. But the good thing about sending your work out there, sending it to literary magazines, you know, I was applying to MFA programs. I didn't get in the first time. It, it gives you this, you know, almost a crust that the rejections don't hurt as much. You feel like, you know, that's that person's opinion, but I got, I finally got published or I got into this other thing. And I think that rejections just teach you, for me, it taught me to work harder. I mean, when I didn't get into my MFA programs the first time, I cried and then I said, I'm going to write the best story that I've ever written. <laughs> and I think finding that like almost revenge fuel really, really is helpful and, and got me into grad school and like having almost a chip on my shoulder has worked for me. And I don't know if that works for everyone, you know, to like, if I got a bad review, I'm like, I'm going to show that person someday. <laughs> I'm going to show them what I can do. And it's, it's maybe just the kind of person I am that I, I don't forget. And I think you can either let rejection diminish you or you can let it fuel you. And, and to me, um, right now, I, I think it, it's always served as fuel. And I think that that is helpful as a writer because everyone's going to, you're going to face some rejection, some negative comments, and you have to be able to take it if you're going to put your words out there. Mm -hmm. Jeff, what are there any things that you reject manuscripts for more times than others? Like, what are some of the main things you'll reject a query for? So the thing about this job that sucks so much is it feels like agents are the kings of rejection. Like, all we do is reject people and get rejected by other people. It's like we are like so beaten. <laughs> um, I think the biggest reason, though, that that we end up not taking on a project is. Um, I look on two things. I look at the premise, um, and there's a question in the Q&A, what makes a strong premise? And the answer to me is talk about it to um, your friends or your librarian or someone and say and see if they go, oh, wow, holy crap, that sounds amazing. And if they go, oh, uh-huh, then that's probably not a strong premise. Um, and I think really focusing, you know, you're going to spend, you know, let's just say you spend a year writing this thing for a couple hours a day, it totally sucks. So at least if you're gonna spend the time, make sure that it feels like the premise itself is something that people are gonna go, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Um, and the other thing is I just don't find the writing usually is strong enough. So I have a team of readers and I tell them to read until they stop. And we stop because, you know, for whatever reason, the dialogue isn't strong enough. Um, the characters aren't believable. Um, there's punctuation errors. Like you just read it and you're like, get to a point you're like, this needs too much work. Um, and we put in tons of work, um, but you have to be already working with a document that you can do something with. Um, and if you can't write dialogue and you're yelling at me, well, you know, we just live in a world where we don't have dialogue or like everybody speaks in, you know, Morse code or something. I don't know how to sell that. So it, to me, it's more helpful that you really focus on your craft and you really focus on the premise. And most things don't have both, one of, both of those things. So last question before I get into audience questions, uh, looking for recommendations, not necessarily historical fiction, but books that are set in historical time periods that you think would be a good example for people to read if they want to write historical stuff themselves, even if it's not historical fiction. Um, let's, I want to hear from both of you. Let's start with Jeff. Do you have recommendations for people? Um, I just finished, um, the power, which is set in the future. Um, and I think that's an interesting one because it is a really interesting premise. It's the idea of what happens if something goes on, goes on in the world and suddenly women are able to conduct electricity 
through their bodies and use them as like methods of healing and also methods of destruction. And that premise is so unique and these characters are so believable. Like that to me is something worthwhile to read. Um, the other one I was thinking about the other day because it's Suzanne, what's her last name? Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? Mr. Norrell and Jonathan Strange. Uh, Suzanne Yee, you shouldn't have asked me. Hold on. <laughs> Jonathan Strange. Clark. Yeah, Susanna Clark. So like that read, it's just so flipping beautifully written and that's historical fiction. I mean, it's set in a historical time and sort of fantasy, um, but uh, just beautifully written with unique characters and a dynamic premise and absolutely believable world. Those are my two. And Laura? So I'll pick two as well. So I'll start with my favorite book of all time, which is The Known World by Edward P. Jones. Um, and that book, I think I go back to again and again, along with his short stories set in Washington, D.C. Um, but that is fiction set in the past, and it is absolutely one of the most beautiful, heart-wrenching novels I've read um, about um, a Black man who is actually a slave owner and, you know, goes into almost 100 different characters' perspectives, and it's, it's a work of art. Um, and the book that I just finished um, two days ago, and I actually had the chance to interview the author, author yesterday, Tiffany McDaniel's book, new book, Betty, um, that came out. And it's set in the 1930s, 1960s, and it's a family saga in Appalachia, Ohio. And I thought it was just the characters is what drove that book and this family um, all surrounding this little girl coming of age named Betty. And it just was really a, an amazing novel. So, and I don't think either of those books like necessarily people would say those are historical fiction. They're just great novels, but they are set in the past. All right, so I wanna get into audience questions now. Uh, first one is for you, Laura. In the revision process, how did you decide what details to retain or to delete? What was your criterion and how painful was that process? The revision process, so there's a lot of things going on. I think the best tip I have for writers is to read it out loud. And if you're stumbling or find yourself almost glazing over yourself, certain sections, think about cutting it or think about revising it. So there's parts where I was reading it out loud and I go off on a tangent and I almost was like kind of reading it faster to get through it. I'm like, this is because it's boring, even to me. Um, who's trying to read it and see if I want it. So I cut those things. So it's not necessarily details. It could be, um, you know, dialogue. It could be something else. But if you're reading it out loud and you're stumbling, um, it's it's time for to set a check mark and then go back to that. Does that need to be, you know, expanded or does it need to be cut? And also my husband, who's my first reader, he's great at saying, Laura, you're rambling on. He's like, you should cut this. And I think it's it's hard at first when you're work looking at like, if you're working with like 20,000 words on the page, you're like, oh, I don't think I should cut these. Like, I, I really want to hold on to that. But I think the longer you work with something and you're, you're, you're just, I don't have any, um, I'm like, sure, let's, let's get rid of it. You know, entire characters, let's get rid of. I, I think that it's spending some time away from the work and then going back to a fresh eyes really helps with that. So Jeff, next question I'll send to you. Uh, when looking for an agent, are all historical periods created equally? Are there certain periods that are more marketable than others? Or does it, I'll fill in for the, the question, does it matter, does the story matter more than the historical period? 
I feel like we answered that, didn't we? Kind of, yeah. I'm just wondering if there are certain periods of history that are more attractive to the literary market than others. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I, I know right now, um, stories with underrepresented voices that are set in like the Civil War or um, during um, the enslavement times are very tough because it feels like that's a very over overdone category. Um, but if, there, if you're writing and you're an underrepresented voice and you're writing about um, black voices in the 1930s or 40s or, you know, something else that feels counterintuitive, that, that feels like something that people are really looking for these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, like, I think you, you, like, who knows? Because that's right today what we're looking for. Um, in two years from now, we'll be looking for something else. So write about some amazing character that you are in love with in some time period that you can really get into. And then I, I, if you're a good enough writer, I think you're, the reader will get into it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to echo something that because when I first showed, um, I, there's agents that came to my MFA program and one of them told me that no one cares about Russia. <laughs> this was like when I was first writing out, no one cares about this time period, no one cares about Russia. This was before um, the 2016 election. And so I was really discouraged and I thought, no, no one's going to want to read this. But I kept going and, you know, it, it didn't matter, you know, I mean, it is strange that all of a sudden everyone's talking about Russia, but I couldn't have ever planned that. In fact, I thought people didn't care about it because this literary gatekeeper told me that. Um, so trust in the character, trust in yourself and, and don't, you can't worry about as a writer what's marketable because as Jeff says, these things are constantly changing and it's the story that matters. Mm-hmm. So, Laura, next question for you. Uh, what if you can't get the facts on certain historical figures or how, what sort of liberties are you allowed to take? Well, I mean, for me, I, since I wrote a, you know, I fictionalized this event that happened in the past, I did take liberties of, you know, fictionalizing who these people were, what they might have said to each other, what their lives might have been like. And I remember not knowing if I had permission to do that. And I was asking one of my mentors, the writer Elizabeth McCracken, about this. And I was like, can I even, you know, have these fictional characters in this with these other historical characters? And she said, you can do what you want. <laughs> you can do what you want. You're a writer. If you if you pull it off, you pull it off, and no one's gonna question that. And so I I think I take that to heart. And I think I think you can't um, you can't become a writer thinking you have all of these. You know, you're in a box, and you can't really think out of that box. Mm-hmm. So next question is also for you, Laura. Sorry, Jeff. I, I will find one for you here in a second. But Laura, uh, how do you keep all your research organized? Oh my gosh, I'm doing a better job of it now because it <laughs> was all, you know, it's just like stacks of books and I had these whiteboards with note cards and different notebooks. So I wasn't very organized um, for the first time around, but I, I do use things like um, note cards, highlighters, underlining. I use like different colors that mean different things to me. So like blue for this character, yellow for this character. I have almost like a code. Um, it, it is, you know, when you're dealing with such a long, you know, a historical time period, I also had like a piece of paper where I had like different events that were happening along with the story events, just so I can kind of visualize it. It helps to, you know, for me, it helps to kind of have a visual representation of the research, um, up on the wall while I'm writing, especially like the structure once I have it and I'm constantly moving things around. So 
But yeah, I was always like, was that in this book? Was that in this book? And I would like take like 10 books from the shelf and have to find it again, <laughs> especially during the revision process. Like, what was that fact? I need to find it again. So, but um, I still keep, I keep everything. I keep anything I've ever <laughs> looked up. I bookmark everything. I keep everything. Mm -hmm. So find it eventually. So I want to get one last question in uh, for both of you. We'll start with you, Jeff. Just if you could give people that are writing in, in history, whether historical fiction or just regular fiction set in history, a piece of advice, what, what is one piece of advice you would give to them? Um, I kind of did. Like write a great, like really learn how to write. Like really focus on the voice. Don't, don't like leave the research behind and write a great story with emotionally compelling characters. Um, and don't don't cut, use research as a cop out. It's historical fiction. You read books because you want to read about people being transformed through conflict. That's what a novel is, and it's great icing on the cake if you can learn something too. And it's set in a time period that would be interesting. But um, you're reading about the character. That's that's the key thing. Laura, same question to you. If you give them one piece of advice, um, my biggest piece of advice is to just sit down do the work. Don't doubt yourself. Just keep going. Um, it will come. And, and if you are a writer, I think that you will keep going and you will perfect your craft. And, you know, for me, it was always reading, always taking in, you know, what other masters of the art are doing and, and thinking about literature from a writer's perspective. And that will help you um, with the craft as well. Mm -hmm. All right, those are all the questions we have for both of you today. Jeff, Laura, thank you so much for being here. This was very insightful, a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, guys. Josh. See you all around. Bye, guys. And for those of you that are still here, I want to go through our usual string of announcements. First off, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the Gotham Writers Conference is filling up. So if you want to spend some time with literary agents in your genre, uh, now is the time to apply. We already have one table that is full. So if there are agents up here that you are interested in spending some good quality time with, uh, registration is open. You can apply whenever. Uh, so give that a look. Also, as far as the Twitter pitch party goes, from now until Friday at midnight, you can pitch your own story, historical fiction, or just literary commercial set in history. Uh, the way to do that is to go over to Twitter, and all of this can be found on the Gotham website too, by the way, but I just want to go through a few of the points real quick. Make sure that when you're pitching your book, you condense your book pitch into a single tweet. Multiple tweet pitches are not allowed. If you have more than one book to pitch, you may pitch them all. Just use separate tweets for each. Also, make sure you come up with a good, oh, excuse me, a good comparable title or two. Uh, it's always a good habit to get into using two comparable titles book X meets book Y. Uh, focus on what makes your book unique. You don't have to give the whole story away. Just have enough to hook the agent. You only have a tweet to do this, so you don't get to go into a lot of detail. So focus on what makes your book unique. Most importantly, make sure you include the hashtag P-I-T-G-O-T-H-A-M. That's Pit Gotham. If you don't include that hashtag, I can't find it. You don't have to tag anybody. You don't have to tweet at anybody. Just include that hashtag in your tweet and I will be able to find it. I will round up uh, as, many, as many pitches as I can, send them off to Jeff for feedback, and hopefully good things will come from that. 
Uh, so next week, we'll be back for our last, last episode of the season. It's going to be uh, debut fiction. And registration is open on the website. So you can go ahead and sign up whenever. Thank you all for being here. And we'll see you next week.